So who can tell me what today is? New Year's Eve. Like, what's the date, though? Yeah, December 31st. December 31st, 2017. 2017 years since when? Yeah, 2017 years since the birth of Jesus. So that's an interesting thing. It's like the, like the day, the year, seems to be a particularly Christian perspective on reality. So what if someone uh, was an atheist? What's this year? Still 2017? Right. Um, well, what if they're Jewish or Muslim or Buddhist? or Baha'i, or Hindu, or agnostic, right? seems to be that 2017 is the year that we kind of collectively agree that it is, kind of globally, uh, regardless of nationality, or gender, or race, or creed, ethnicity. Um, we all seem to follow the Gregorian calendar. So I looked up on that great and most reliable research site, Wikipedia, to see how many calendars they had references to. And they referenced 83 different calendars. They referenced a Jewish one, or an Armenian one, a Baha'i one, Egyptian, Mesopotamian. They had various Chinese calendars, Japanese calendars, a Coptic calendar, Ethiopian, Qumran, Islamic, a Byzantine, various indigenous calendars from geographical places all around the globe, just to name a few. But as we know, Worldwide, at least for civic purposes, everyone now follows the Gregorian calendar, named for Pope Gregory XIII, established in October 1582. It, it followed basically the Julian calendar of Julius Caesar. However, it was adjusted just a bit to better account for leap year. So that's nice. What, what a, adjusting for leap year does for us, it keeps our holidays in the same seasons. So, for example, if we were all uh, Muslims and we held to a Muslim calendar, the Muslim holiday is based on a lunar calendar, and so their holidays don't stay in the same season. They shift. So this year, Ramadan is in the summer. Ten years ago, Ramadan was in the winter. And so it's kind of constantly on the move. Um, so this is what the, the, the situation of the Gregorian calendar was intended to do, but eventually it moved past keeping Christian holidays in the right season, and became just the civic holiday that everyone follows. So what's interesting about that is, to me, the extent to which, for that reason, the Christian view of time has kind of shaped reality for the rest of the globe. So as we know, it's been 2,000, or roughly speaking, 2,017 years since the birth of Jesus of Nazareth, born in Bethlehem called the Christ, the King of the Jews, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Savior of the world. However, the extent to which Christianity is actually influencing our dominant culture is questionable. I mean, the dominant culture seems to be marked more by consumerism and self-interest, greed and xenophobia. It's not marked by joy and peace and love and hope and forgiveness and, and inclusion. We're all kind of part of a, another calendar or part of another way of being in the world that demands our entire lives. We call it the rat race. 
We, we know, right? We're all full of our own ambition. We're trying to do the best at our job, to get a promotion, to get a better job. We want a better house or a better car or a better phone, right? We want better spouses. We want better friends. We want a better church. You might want a better preacher. I don't know, right? We're always looking to improve, to kind of be in competition, to outdo one person or the other. And our allegiances are, are torn, and they pull at us. Is my allegiance primarily to my job or to my family, uh, to my church or to my work, to my nation or to the people of God? I mean, what makes up our group? Is it our ethnicity, our gender, our, our sex, our race, our socioeconomic group? Do we live in North Lakeland or South Lakeland or somewhere in between? Um, is it our sports teams? Who do we pledge our allegiance to? Family, church, nation, brand, loyalty. Of course, these are not necessarily mutually exclusive. However, our lives are formed by a rhythm in time that's counterintuitive to the time of God and the rhythm of the Spirit. So Timothy is instructed in the book 2 Timothy. He says, For people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, inhuman, ruthless, slanderers, degenerates, brutes, haters of, of good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to the outward form of godliness but denying its power. Avoid them, the writer of 2 Timothy says. So I'm afraid that historic Christianity has been exchanged for a form of American civil religion where we can kind of call ourselves Christian without actually practicing the life of Jesus, of being disciples and followers of the Christ. We're, we're more shaped by the economy and the rhythm and the things that would kind of impinge and inform and form us, our, our practices, so that I don't know what's that different about me than anyone else who lives on Darlington Circle, right? My house is mostly like theirs. My cars are like theirs. My kids are going to college. We go on vacation, right? So, so what's different about my life than anybody else's life in my neighborhood? Have, have I been uh, shaped by God and by the Christian tradition and by my faith in Jesus, or have I just been shaped by the general American culture so that I look pretty much like everybody else? So maybe I swear a little less or drink a little less Maybe I yell at my kids less. But what does that do? Is that, is that what Jesus came to live and die for? I, I mean, that seems so trivial to me. There has to be something more to this life. There must be some way of being in the world that reflects the, the truth and authenticity of the Christian faith. So Paul writes this in Galatians. And this is the, the lectionary text for December 31st, December 31st um, 2017. It says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as children. And because you are children, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a child. And if a child, 
then also an heir through God. So the fullness of time. Um, time as a moment. Time that's not just chronologically stacked seconds or minutes or days or weeks or months, but the fullness of time when we're just kind of wrapped up in it. So time as experience when we're playing the game and stacking the cups as opposed to time when we're just kind of standing in line waiting for our table at the restaurant or standing in line kind of waiting for the ride at Disney or sitting in our car waiting for traffic. All, all of those things, they get kind of exaggerated, right? So the fullness of time. Now, this is cliche, I know, but uh, I, I saw this on a, um, like a home decor plaque that, that I guess you're supposed to buy and kind of put on your walls. And if you have a lot of home decor plaques on your walls, don't, don't take offense. I think they're fine. But this one says this. It says, life is not measured by the number of breaths we take, but by the moments that take our breath away. And, and as cliche as that is, I think it's really true. We can't just say my life is so many seconds or so many minutes, but my life is, is really measured by those times that I have kind of breathed deeply and, and taken in the kind of the fullness and, and the awe and the richness and the kind of thickness of life and of time. So... We're called to live according to a different calendar, to be marked by a different type of time, a different way of being in the world. As our opening psalm reference, our God is the creator, the creator of the universe, the creator of the sun and the stars, the creator of the animals, the creator of the mountains, the creator of the rivers, the creator of us. And so the very creator of time. And so we worship the one who created time. And there is a way, a pace, a, a rhythm that we were actually made for that our dominant culture is shaping us in a different way. And so what we're going to try and talk about today, just for a few minutes, are ways in which we might live according to the time of God and the rhythm of the Spirit and maybe resist the dominant culture's attempt to kind of just pressure us into these kind of uh, instantaneous uh, consumers of goods. So um, this is Christmas time. It's the second season of the Christian season. So along the uh, outsides here of the sanctuary, we have some icons that we put up a few years ago. I love these. They were uh, drawn by Josh Galetta. Uh, they were um, colored by, by Kevin O'Brien. Uh, they were kind of framed in by Ted Smith. And they were all kind of curated by uh, Carol Arenaga. But if we start on my left, your right, the first one with the star, that's Advent. So we've, we've just kind of come through the Advent season. So the Christian season, the Christian year, doesn't begin on January the 1st, right? You know the, the Jewish New Year? Uh, starts at uh, Rosh Hashanah. Uh, if you go to like a, a Chinese restaurant, you can see that the Chinese New Year kind of starts at a different, it's the year of the rat or the rabbit, or I don't know exactly what it is right now, but it's, it's on your placemat, yeah? Um, if, if, if you come here, right, if you're a Christian and you come to a church, the year starts with Advent. 
right? And, and we light the various Advent candles until Christmas Day. We light the center candle, the Christmas candle, the Christ candle. And it is now lit because we're no longer anticipating his birth. We are already celebrating that he has been born. And so Advent marks that, and it's sown here by the star. Next comes Christmas time. So Christmas time is not just a day that you kind of exchange gifts and then you kind of regret how much you purchase. What do they call that? Buyer's remorse, right? Christmas is a time. It's the 12 days of Christmas. That's why we sing that song on the first day of Christmas. That's Christmas Day. And it lasts for 12 days. We're in the midst of it right now. That's why we still sing, Oh, come, oh, uh, not what we sing, Oh, come, all you faithful. Yeah? Because it's still Christmas time. It's, it's the Christmas season. The tree's still up. We haven't put anything away because this is in the second season of the, of the church calendar. And it is Christmas time. And you see the, the birth of Jesus there with uh, Mary and Joseph, right? This will give way very shortly to the third season of the Christian calendar, Epiphany, uh, marked here by the baptism of Jesus. It's what the, the day of Epiphany, January the 6th, uh, marks. So Epiphany is a season that marks the manifestation of God, the presence of God. I, I, I had an epiphany. Uh, it means that, that God kind of revealed God's self to me, some truth to me, right? Some love, some hope, some realization that the world is not simply reducible to kind of the material things of the world, but it also is kind of overlapped and interlocked with this larger reality, yeah? And so uh, we'll start a series next week on, on January the 7th. Is that next Sunday? Anybody? All right. I'm not too good with time, but that's okay because that's what we're talking about today. Um, on January 7th, right, we'll, we'll, start, we'll start a new series. So Epiphany, right, is kind of the celebratory kind of aha um, times in our lives where, where God reveals who God is. This then gives away Epiphany ends on... Um, Mon, uh, ends, excuse me, on um, Shrove Tuesday, some call it. Some call it Fat Tuesday. Some call it Mardi Gras. Perhaps you've heard of that. So Mardi Gras is not just about beads that are thrown or times to, to say, hey, we should go to Harry's because they serve Cajun food and I, and I like their uh, crawfish etouffee, uh, which you might like. But it's more than that, right? Uh, Mardi Gras was a time to kind of use up the perishables that we would normally use and, and kind of celebrate in the making of our breads and our pastries and the like during the time of Epiphany because we're entering the fourth season, which is now in the, in the back corner over here, which is Lent. So Lent begins on a Wednesday. We call it Ash Wednesday. It's the day after Mardi Gras, which is Fat Tuesday, right? And it's no longer about the celebration of the Epiphany of God it's about this kind of marking a time to prepare for the death and resurrection of Jesus. So uh, Lent is 40 days, if you don't count the Sundays, because Sundays is always a celebration day, right? We always take communion on Sunday, and so who can celebrate when the bridegroom is here? But if you don't count the Sundays, it's 40 days from, from Ash Wednesday until Easter. So on Ash Wednesday... We have the imposition of ashes, right? We put ashes on your forehead and we make a cross and we say, from ashes you have come until ashes you shall return. That's kind, of, that's kind of dim, right? Ashes to ashes and dust to dust. It's the truth, 
that we don't always want to hear it. But it's an important part of the story, right? That God is not just in the moments that we feel God, that God is in those moments when we don't feel God. In fact, God might be closest to us when, we're, when we are closest to death. And that's the time. It marks the 40 days of Jesus in the wilderness, uh, the time of testing. Of course, it gives way to Easter, which, like Christmas, once again, is not just a day, but it's a season. Uh, Easter lasts for 50 days. It goes from Easter Sunday, which is a huge celebration because we celebrate that Jesus has been resurrected. It goes up through 40 days later his ascension, and then the next 10 days of waiting for the gift of the Spirit, which brings us to our, our final season, which is Pentecost. Uh, Pentecost is the only uh, marked season on the church calendar that is a single day. Um, on the day of Pentecost, the, the Spirit was given. On the day of Pentecost, uh, they were filled and empowered in, in this new way. So the rest of the, of the calendar year, in the, in the Catholic circles, they call it ordinary time, which is actually more than half the year. And I particularly love that. I love that the church calendar, while it's marked with these amazing moments and seasons of Advent, of, of Christmas, of Epiphany, of Lent, of Easter and Pentecost, that still the majority of the year is ordinary time. Just regular time. Days where, you know, you have to get up, not because you woke up, but because the alarm clock went off and woke you up. You have to get up and, and fix breakfast for the kids and get them off to school. You have to get up and get to work. You've got to kind of fight the traffic. You've got to kind of deal with your boss or your coworker. You know, you try to kind of get home and you don't know, is there something at home underneath to run by Publix? You know, what's going to happen? You know, you kind of do it and get ready and then bam, you go to sleep and you get up and you do it again. Here it comes, right? But in those ordinary days, in the mundane of life, in the majority of our time, literally the majority of our time, and the majority of the church calendar, ordinary time is the time of the Spirit. The day of Pentecost introduces us to the mundane, ordinary time. That is, that the Spirit is always with us. The Spirit is the very breath of life. Whether we realize it or not, every time we take a breath in and take a breath out, it's the same reference to the very life-giving Spirit of God. That without that, we can't live. And Scripture does not differentiate between that and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. It kind of wraps all those things together. We kind of set, separate them out theologically, but I don't know that we should. And so... Here's, here's then the opportunity. We live in the world, so we know that we're going to be part of the dominant culture. Uh, we're not going to be able to be able to completely avoid it, right? Today, still December 31st, we're going to say it's the last year of the calendar year. We're going to celebrate and mark it somehow tonight. We'll stay up late. We'll watch the ball drop. Uh, you know, we'll have fun with friends and family. And tomorrow, we'll not mark a new year. I get it. We're part of that year. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. So we're shaped most deeply by another calendar. At least we have the opportunity to be shaped by that calendar. So when you regularly come on a Sunday to Oasis, when you, when you, when you pray, when you sing, when you take communion, when you fellowship with one another, 
that, that is having a, a, an impact, a, a formational uh, shaping of who you are into the very image of Christ that is contrary to the dominant way of being in the world. And sometimes we just follow what are wrong, right? The consumerist calendar. We're going we're gonna to find some reason to celebrate. And granted, some of them are great reasons. You know, we have MLK Day, and we have President's Day, and we have the uh, Valentine's Day. That's a fun one. Um, we have uh, Mother's Day, and Memorial Day, and Father's Day, and Fourth of July, and Labor Day, and Veterans Day, and Thanksgiving. And those are all great things to celebrate. I'm not telling us that we shouldn't celebrate them. But if we just celebrate them, then we too will be shaped into this kind of, I don't know, I hesitate to call it inhuman, but it is less than human than we are meant to be. So the incarnation, the birth of Jesus, God in the flesh, is what Christmas time celebrates, right? That somehow that which is eternal has become uh, Temporary, that which is infinite has become finite. That, that somehow in that incarnation, in that birth of that baby, this beautiful miracle has happened. But that, my friends, is ultimately what it means to be human. Jesus is the fullest representation of humanity. Sometimes, I think I've said this before, but it's worth repeating, Sometimes my students at the college will struggle with the humanity of Jesus because for them, and maybe for us as well, the divinity of Christ seems to always trump the humanity, right? If we take Jesus' divinity seriously, somehow it overcomes our idea that Jesus is human. We think, well, you know, yeah, he's human, but he's divine, right? Interestingly enough, Scripture never hits that so hard, right? It does it in, in the um, second epistle of John, it doesn't say the one who denies the divinity of Christ speaks with the spirit of Antichrist. It says the one who denies the humanity of Christ speaks with the spirit of Antichrist. But then we think, well, look at me. You know, I'm, I'm kind of broken. I, I don't do what I want to do, uh, what I think I should do, and then I do do what I think I shouldn't do. And so that kind of gets me in this kind of bind, right? And I think, oh, woe is me. And we think, well, well, Jesus can't be human like me because Jesus can't be as broken as I am. But then we've asked the question all wrong. The question is not, can the humanity of Jesus lower to my definition of humanity as I experience it? But if, if Scripture has revealed to us and the Christian tradition has confessed to us that Jesus is fully human, then Jesus becomes the standard of humanity. Jesus is what it means to be a human. And it's only the degree to which I'm like Jesus that I too become fully human. And when I'm not like Jesus, I'm kind of like subhuman. Or at least I'm not living up to my full humanity. I'm not living up to what I've been created to be. It is the very humanity of Christ that is the standard of humanity. And we have the opportunities then to kind of live in this. Now, this takes a different view than the kind of spontaneous, um, ready-made, kind of quick, um, instant gratification that the kind of consumerist, modern, economic 
uh, culture would suggest to us. It's a slow, long process. Martin Luther King said, the arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And I know sometimes, I mean, frankly, 2017 was not our best, <laughs> right? We, we did, it wasn't the best year for humanity in terms of how we treated one another, in terms of how we thought about one another, in terms of the divisions that we kind of participated in. And it's, it's in these kind of rough times that we think, I don't think the arc of the universe is bending toward justice. It seems to be bending towards injustice. But I think perhaps that Dr. King is right and our perception is just too short-sighted. We need this longer view. We need to be able to see the way that God sees, this kind of divine or kind of heavenly perspective, that the arc of the universe is long, but it does bend toward justice. So what can we do about it? Just a few things, uh, suggestions for you. Avoid the trap of immediate gratification and uh, cultivate patience. So avoid thinking that somehow whatever you want or you think you need needs to happen on your timetable. Kind of rest in those times of kind of uncomfort and struggle. Trust in God. It'll get there. The degree will get done. The new job will come. The relationship will grow. But, but pulling on it, it's not going to make it happen any faster. Right? I love these plants that are on our lanai to grow a little bigger. But if I go out there and tug on them every day, that's not going to work. Right? Just slow down. Pump the brakes. Take a breath. Give your ambition <laughs> some rest. You are not the sum of your followers on Instagram or Twitter or how many likes you get on a Facebook. You're not the sum of your paycheck or your benevolent giving. You're, you're not the sum of any of these things that kind of mark and, and measure our lives in the general sense. Number two, seek to live in the moment rather than constantly looking forward to a better or different future. I suffered from this a lot as a younger man. You know, when I was in college, I think, oh, if I can get to seminary. When I was in seminary, only if I can get the PhD done. When I got the PhD done, only if I could get the, you know, the faculty position. When I got the faculty position, only if I could get promoted to associate professor. When I got to associate professor, only if I could get promoted to full professor. You know, you kind of keep li living and looking hardly living, really, just looking towards some next event where you think it's going to be all right, and then you get that, and you just want some other thing. And, and our culture would tell you that's the way to live, that you should be full of ambition. You should want something more. You should have some drive. You should want to make yourself better, right? And you just become this ball of energy that is just being consumed. You are consuming and you are being consumed in a system that's very inhuman, that has very little to do with the timing of God or the rhythm of the Spirit that the church calendar speaks of. Three, 
It's not your circumstances that give you true joy, peace, hope, or love. We think it is. Like, ah, if I could just get that new iPhone 10, or maybe, or maybe the iWatch, or if I could just have that relationship that I, that I want and don't have, if I, if I could just, I don't know, um, have this, that, or the other. None of those things are going to bring you happiness or joy. It's fleeting. It's temporary. Fourthly, your life is not the measurement of your accomplishments. It's not. It's not just, you know, how many things that you get done, what kind of notoriety you, you produce. There's, there's another measurement to life. And that's this. You are because you are loved. Contrary to Descartes, who says you, you are because you think. Even contrary to the, to the dominant evangelical position who says you are because you believe. Deeper than that, you are because you are loved. You are not a slave. You are a child of God. As Paul says to the Galatians, you've been adopted. And not just a child, but an heir. You, you, you are due to inherit the earth. Not because you've worked harder. Not, not because you stayed up later. Not because you've won the race. But because you've been faithful. Because you've slowed down. Because you've trusted. Because you've leaned heavily into hope. Because you've decided to be human. As humans, I believe, were meant to be. Um, so let's, let's make this plan together. Let's plan on trying to live by the timing and the rhythm of God. Let's cultivate patience in our lives. Let's kind of breathe deeply and take pauses and trust. This long view is an interesting one, and it's not easy to gain because I think we're more uh, nearsighted than we are farsighted. But, but we need some spiritual farsightedness in order to capture this. Aldo Leopold wrote about this, I think, or this concept in a short prose piece called Thinking Like a Mountain. I've asked Ricky Cotton to come and read it to us. And when he's done, I'd like us just to rest for a minute of silence together to kind of mark the end of this calendar year and the beginning of a new calendar year. But understanding that we're already in the midst of the new year as we worship Jesus and follow him. A meditative reading. <clears throat> Thinking Like a Mountain by Aldo Leopold. A deep, chesty cry echoes from Rimrock to Rimrock, rolls down the mountain and fades into the far blackness of the night. 
It is an outburst of wild, defiant sorrow and of contempt for all the adversities of the world. Every living thing, and perhaps many a dead one as well, pays heed to that call. To the deer, it is a reminder of the way of all flesh. To the pine, a forecast of midnight scuffles and the blood upon the snow. To the coyote, a promise of gleanings to come. To the cowman, a thread of red ink at the bank. To the hunter, a challenge of fang against bullet. Yet behind these obvious and immediate hopes and fears, there lies a deeper meaning known only to the mountain itself. Only the mountain has lived long enough to listen objectively to the howl of the wolf. Those unable to decipher the hidden meaning know nevertheless that it is there, for it is felt in all wolf country and distinguishes that country from all other land. It tingles in the spine of all who, who hear wolves by night or who scan their tracks by day. Even without sight or sound of wolf, it is implicit in a hundred small events. The midnight whinny of a pack horse, the rattle of rolling rocks, the bound of a fleeing deer, the way shadows lie under spruces. Only the ineducable oblivious can fail to sense the presence or absence of wolves or the fact that mountains have a secret opinion about them. My own conviction on this score dates from the day I saw a wolf die. We were eating lunch on a high rim rock at the foot of which a turbulent river elbowed its way. We saw what we thought was a doe fording the torrent, her breast awash in white water. When she climbed the bank toward us and shook out her tail, we realized our era. It was a wolf. A half dozen others, evidently grown pups, sprang from the willows and all joined in a welcoming melee of wagging tails and playful maulings. What was literally a pile of wolves writhed and tumbled in the center of an open flat at the foot of our rim rock. In those days, we had never heard of passing up a chance to kill a wolf. In a second, we were pumping lead into the pack, but with more excitement than accuracy. How to aim a steep downhill shot is always confusing. When our rifles were empty, only the old wolf was down, and one pup was dragging a leg into impassable slide rocks. We reached the old wolf in time to watch a fierce green fire dying in her eyes. I realized then, and have known ever since, that there was something new to me in those eyes, something known only to her and to the mountain. I was young then, and full of triggerage. I thought that because fewer wolves meant more deer, that no wolves would mean hunter's paradise. 
But after seeing that green fire die in her eyes, I sensed that neither the wolf nor the mountain agreed with my view. Since then, I have lived to see state after state eradicate its wolves. I have watched the face of many a newly wolfless mountain and seen the south-facing slopes stripped with a maze of new deer trails. I have seen every edible bush and seedling browsed first to anemic inedibility and then to death. I have seen every edible tree defoliated to the height of a saddle horn. Such a mountain looks as if someone had given God new pruning cheers and forbidden him all other exercise. In the end, the starved bones of the hoped-for deer herd, dead of its too muchness, bleach along with the bones of dead sage or molder under the high junipers. I now suspect that just as a deer herd lives in mortal fear of its wolves, so does a mountain live in mortal fear of its deer, and perhaps with better cause. For while a buck pulled down by wolves can be replaced in two or three years, a range pulled down by too many deer may fail in replacement for many decades. So also with cows. The cowman who cleans his range of wolves does not realize that he is taking over the wolf's job of trimming the herd to fit the range. He has not learned to think like a mountain. Hence we have dust bowls and rivers washing our future into the sea. We all strive for prosperity, safety, comfort, long life, dullness. The deer strives with his supple legs, the cowman with trap and poison, the politician with pen, most of us with machines, votes, dollars, but it all comes down to the same thing, peace in our time. A measure of success in this peace is all well enough and perhaps is requisite to objective thinking, but too much safety seems to yield only danger in the long run. Perhaps this is behind Henry David Thoreau's saying, in wildness is the salvation of the world. Perhaps this is the hidden meaning in the howl of the wolf, long known among mountains, but seldom perceived among human beings. So as we said, uh, we're starting a new series uh, next week called I Have a Dream, uh, focusing in on uh, the spirit and various biblical characters. As a part of that series, we're going to do a Tuesday evening kind of book club that mirrors a bit what we did earlier uh, this year with the, um, the BIBLE series. We went through Rob Bell's uh, What is the Bible? Uh, this time we'll go, be going through Jack Levinson's Fresh Air, uh, The Holy Spirit for an Inspired Life. Uh, I, I can't say enough uh, about this book. Uh, it really is uh, transformative. Um, he's, a, he's a great teacher and a wonderful writer. He's very kind of accessible. It's a bit more literary than, than Bell's book, for those of you who read it. 
Uh, Jack uh, is a professor of uh, Biblical Hebrew and Old Testament at Southern Methodist University. And as we said earlier, um, on our last session, he's going to kind of Skype in with a video conference uh, with us. So these are uh, available to you at the uh, info desk after the service uh, for $10 a piece, which is $2 less than what Amazon sells them for. We got a special deal from the nuns at Paraclete Press. Um, they did set the price, though. We didn't take advantage of the nuns. Um, but uh, I would. I would highly encourage you to pick up a copy uh, and to join us on Tuesday nights at um, 6.30. There's a little bit of miscommunication there as to 6 or 6.30, but it starts at 6.30, and it will be here in the sanctuary starting on January the 9th and meeting every Tuesday up until February the 13th, uh, which is uh, Mardi Gras or Shrove Tuesday. Um, so please, please uh, participate. Uh, I, trust me, it will, it will challenge you and stretch you, but in healthy and helpful ways. Um, lastly, we have some poinsettias, or poinsettias, as some people say, that have been decorating the stage during Advent and Christmas time, but that time is now passing. So we'd invite you to come and uh, pick up one and kind of take it home with you. Uh, I hope that you enjoy uh, this uh, season that you are blessed and restful and full of grace and mercy and hope and peace and love. And I hope to see you back here next week. God bless. Go in peace.